Pastor Trent Griffith and his wife Andrea know a thing or two about loving one another according to the Bible. Love is not irritable. This is love overlooks offenses. The translation I learned that point in, it said love is not easily provoked. Are you easily provoked? Love does not rejoice in wrong when our, when our spouse fails or when our spouse falls in an area. No, we grieve over that sin. So love doesn't rejoice in wrong, but let me show you what it does rejoice in. It rejoices in the truth. Love listens to truth. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Love can be defined a lot of different ways. We say we love our children, and we say we love key lime pie. Some of us this weekend especially are saying we love football, or maybe specifically, we love the Patriots or the Rams. Well, as you know, songs talk a lot about love as well. Love was made for me and can define it, can we actually live it out? God has a lot to say about love in the Bible, and one of the passages where he defines love is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that's where Trent and Andrea Griffith are teaching from right here on Resonate. They're using God's word to shoot down the myth, love will hold my marriage together. So let's listen. Here's Pastor Trent with his wife, Andrea. Here's the truth. Marriage will hold my love together. You see, we need something more than a feelings-based love. And so we're gonna learn a different definition of love. And it's contained for us right here in 1 Corinthians 13. I would like to read to you God's definition of love. It begins in verse four. Love is patient, which means this. Love waits patiently. It also says love is kind, that love performs intentional acts of kindness. Now, as women here, as moms, you know it is so easy to think kind thoughts about your kids all day long, but it's a lot harder to think those kind thoughts, those acts of kindness toward our husbands. I think we tend to think, well, he's a big boy, he can take care of himself. But if we're wise, we would lean into what the scripture is telling us because this relationship is the one flesh relationship. This is the relationship that doesn't end. The kids, they grow up and they leave, but we need to be practicing kindness to our spouse. Love accepts my spouse for who he or she is because the scripture says love does not envy. Love doesn't envy the spouse that it doesn't have. And if all you do for the rest of your married life is fantasize about the person that you wish you'd married, you're envious. Love accepts my spouse for the person that they are. 
Also, love does not boast, love does not brag. I looked that up yesterday, and the definition I like the most just said to speak with exaggerated pride about oneself. No one wants to be around that person. But love instead does not think highly of itself. In fact, it doesn't think of itself at all. And the next thing says, love is not arrogant, which means love knows how to admit a wrong. Love apologizes. Love seeks forgiveness. Love confesses sin. Also, love is not rude. Love is not rough or harsh or impolite. We have to know what is rude to our spouse or what is honoring to our spouse and make sure we're speaking that language because perception is reality for that person. So we have to understand each other's languages. The next one says, love does not insist on its own way. Love defers. This is the whole root of marriage conflict. And the reason we can't seem to resolve marriage conflict is because one or both parties will simply not defer to the other. We are so convinced we are right. We are willing to win the battle and lose the war. Love lays down its rights to be right. And love humbles itself and, and allows the other person to have their way. Um, Andrew and I have a list of things that we are completely opposite in. We won't go into detail. We would be here for a long time. But we won't go into detail about all the different ways that we are uh, opposite. I can't tell you how weak Andrea drinks her coffee. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so we've had to learn that her way is not wrong We've had to learn her way is not wrong. It's just super weird. I mean, it's just, it's strange. But I've had, I, and we I have, have had to learn that his way is not wrong. It's just different. We just do things differently. Right. And so love doesn't insist on its own way. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, but that he lays down his life for his friends. And then the next thing he says is, you are my friends. Jesus laid down his life. Some of us won't even lay down our way or our preference about something in order to uh, bring intimacy into the marriage. Love is not irritable. This is love overlooks offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The best wedding advice I ever got was a lady who said to me, whenever you have an issue with your husband, an offense or whatever it is, always pray about it, always take it to the Lord first. And as I've done that over the years, I've realized that 80% of the problem is me. I'm being irritable or I'm being petty or I'm not seeing it through the right perspective. And so then when I do bring the 20%, those are things like, is this damaging his character? Is this damaging God's glory? Is this damaging our relationship? This is not talking about enabling sin. This is not talking about tolerating abuse. This is just talking about overlooking something that's irritating. 
It's a glory to just overlook it and just let it slide right off. We don't have to die and battle on every hill in our marriage. The translation I learned that point in, it said, love is not easily provoked. Are you easily provoked by the offenses of others? Are you easily irritated? Are you this little fragile teacup that can't get bumped and jarred a little bit? If you are that person, you probably ought to wait to get married until God toughens you up a little bit to risk getting close to an imperfect person who at times is going to annoy you and irritate you. And God's gonna use the irritations and annoyances actually to grow you up, to learn how to forgive and to learn how to love somebody other than yourself. Love is not easily provoked. The next thing says love is not resentful. Again, the translation that I learned this in says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love forgives. Love keeps no record of wrongs. If you're piling up a list of offenses that you have towards your mate, if I ask you right now to describe your mate and just it's so easy for you to describe all of their imperfections and it's so hard for you to call attention to anything they've ever done good, you probably have kept a list of wrongs. That's not love. That's loving yourself. This is the way that God loves us. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 19, he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you understand this is the gospel? This is what draws us to the heart of Christ, that he would look at us and treat us as if there's not anything we have ever done wrong. That's the message of the gospel. That's our fourth pillar of our church. That's the great commission. We take this message of reconciliation to the world. Is it possible the reason we're not getting the great commission done, is it possible the reason we're not making a bigger impact on our community is because we really don't get the message of reconciliation here first, not to count a record of wrongs against one another because we are so brought to our knees with the fact that God is not counting our offenses against us. We bend that vertical justification, that vertical forgiveness toward our spouse in a thousand different ways. Did you know that the eighth definition of the word love in Webster's dictionary is this, a zero score, as in the game of tennis. That's a great definition of love, isn't it? Love refuses to keep score. If you're a scorekeeper, your goal is not to love, your goal is to win. And if you are piling up a list of offenses and you're not piling up your own offenses, if you're winning, you feel pretty good about yourself, but you're not loving. Love forgives. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but instead love grieves over sin. Recently, I just noticed something about my heart that was really disturbing. I, I noticed that when people were talking negatively or when a negative thing was being said, I, my heart, my ears, I was like leaning into that. And the Holy Spirit just gripped my heart and said, Andrea, that is rejoicing in wrongdoing. 
And I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the kind of person that's saying it or hearing it and thinking more highly of myself when I hear a negative report of someone else. That's rejoicing in wrong. And one of the great things about being married is you have a built-in accountability partner to not rejoice in wrong. You have somebody who sees your heart, who sees your soul, who hears the words that come out of your mouth and can say, hey, that's rejoicing in wrong. That's not honoring Christ. That's not honoring each other. In our home, you will very rarely see a Griffith sitting on the couch watching TV by themselves. If we're gonna watch TV, we're gonna watch TV together or as a family, why? Because it's way too easy to be rejoicing in wrong when you're by yourself or when you think no one else is watching. So we don't rejoice, love does not rejoice in wrong when our, when our spouse fails or when our spouse falls in an area. No, we grieve over that sin and we pray and we come alongside and we encourage to get back on the right path. So love doesn't rejoice in wrong, but let me show you what it does rejoice in. It rejoices in the truth. Love listens to truth. Love loves truth. Love loves environments where truth is heard. Let me ask you this. Do you love bringing your marriage to church? Do you love bringing your marriage into a small group? Love loves truth, environments where God's truth is on display in my face, so I can't run away from it. Our church from time to time has people say, hey, we need some marriage counseling, but it's gonna be really strange for you to call and us to look to see how often you've been in church and to say, you know, it's really surprising that you would want like one-on-one -on -one special counsel with truth when we do marriage counseling every week in this room and you haven't bothered to like get here every week and expose your marriage to the truth. It's really weird that you'd want one-on-one -on -one counseling when you haven't put yourself in a small group where we talk about how to apply God's truth to marriage, husbands and wives. And so there is truth available. If you don't love listening to truth, it shouldn't surprise you that you're your marriage is going off the rails. Put your marriage in the atmosphere where truth is heard and loved and known. It goes on and says, love bears all things. That means love protects. Love bears the weight of life's difficulties. Love doesn't break down under pressure. Love accepts the responsibility. Love pays the bills, love gets a job, love comes home every night. That's mundane generosity of love, a lot different than neurological chemical reactions. And so love protects. And then it says love believes all things. This is our response to truth. Love trusts God. It trusts God with our spouse. Love trusts the power of the gospel to change our spouse. Love believes the best in our spouse. Love isn't afraid to take risks. It trusts God. And then it says love hopes all things, which means love prays hard as a couple. It never gives up on what God could do to make our marriage better. It hopes all things. It sets goals, it dreams big, and it prays hard. And then finally it says, love endures all things, which means love stays through every season of life. Love endures. 
That word endures in the Greek is the word hupomone. It means remains under. Love remains under the pressure. Love remains under the suffering. Love remains through the honeymoon stage. Love remains through the ankle biter stage. Love remains through the teenage stage. Love remains after the kids leave. Love remains after the dog dies. Love remains when cancer shows up. Love remains to the end. Love stays through every season because it never gives up hope on the power of God to change your life as it is exposed to the gospel. When I was uh, 16 years old, I'd been a Christian for one year. I didn't grow up in church. When I was 15 years old, I got exposed to the gospel through the ministry of our church. When I found the Bible, I just loved it. And I began to saturate my mind with scripture. And so as a 16 year old, going to my public high school, the year was 1984, junior in high school, Eisenhower High School, Lawton, Oklahoma. One of my classes was a sociology class, the study of the way that people behave in groups, right? So um, I remember my teacher, Mrs. Ryans, one day asked us to open our textbook and the chapter title was love. And I thought, oh, this is going to be funny. Our teacher's going to attempt a bunch of hormonal 16-year-olds about love. And sure enough, she said, I want you to go home tonight. I want you to take out a blank sheet of paper. I want you to fill up the front side of that paper with your best definition of the word love. Now, when she made that assignment, you could hear an audible gasp in the room from all the girls. (laughs) And I mean, they just thought that was the easiest assignment that's ever been given. I mean, they went home... Bam, turn that baby in. They'd planned out the wedding. I mean, they'd been dreaming about this thing. They just had that thing figured out. You could also hear something in the room from all of the guys. What? Yeah, something like that. And so I'm like, I really struggled with that. I went home, took out my piece of paper, and I stared at it for 30 minutes. Not a whole lot coming. I finally got something on the paper, took it in the next day, handed it in with everybody else. Mrs. Ryans graded the papers during that class. And right before she dismissed class, she said, I want everybody to stop what you're doing. Put your books away. Give me your undivided attention. Today, I have received the best definition of love I have ever received. And I want you to hear it. She's been making the assignment for 13 years. So she had our attention. This is what she read. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in a wrongdoing. Rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. By the time she'd finished reading that, everybody was like looking around like, which one of us doofuses could have written something like that? That's pretty good. And they began to demand from Mrs. Ryan's that she would expose the source. And she finally, with a tear in her eye, said, Trent wrote that. (laughs) 
And the reaction that you just gave is the same one I got as a 16 year old. People began to laugh at me and mock me. People began to argue with me. I had a big football player I played football with. He looked at me, he's like, that's ridiculous. Nobody loves like that. That's way too high of a standard. I'm like, I just wrecked your dating life, didn't I? And Friday and Saturday nights, not gonna look the same if you use that definition of love. And he, he, he said, no way, your definition says love never ends. My parents got a divorce. Are you trying to tell me that my parents never loved each other? I'm like, look, look, hang on, whoa, whoa. I, I, listen. I didn't write that. They said, you cheated? I said, I copied every word. <laughs> they said, from who? Did you copy off Alice? Alice has always got good stuff and you don't ever, no, no, no. I slid my sociology book to the side and I pulled out my Bible, which I took with me to sociology class every day. And I opened to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and I said, guys, that's not my definition of love. That's God's definition of love. And if you have a problem with it, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. I should have known I was going to be a harvest pastor at that point. Don't you think? <laughs> I had the first pillar down, the unapologetic preaching of God's word, right? Listen, I didn't know it at the time, but Mrs. Ryan's was having a hard time loving Mr. Ryans. Mr. Ryans was our school counselor. He was the guy you got sent to if you got in trouble. I, I visited him a couple of times too. And, um, and he was hard to love. Um, so I could, I could get this book. I didn't know it at the time, but Mrs. Ryans was so impacted. That was like her first exposure to Bible she went home and started loving Mr. Ryan's like that. She became so interested in this book that would contain something like that, she started reading the rest of it. I invited her to my church. Before the school year was over with, she repented of sin. She placed her faith in Christ for the first time understanding this is not just the way we're to love our spouses. This is the way that God loves us. And we love our spouses this way because we can't get over the fact that God would love us. And of course we would love somebody like that because God would love somebody like us. About three or four years later, I became the eighth grade Sunday school teacher at my church. And guess who came through my class? Mrs. Ryan's two kids. I got to teach Mrs. Ryan's two kids God's definition of love. About 10 years later, Andrew and I were married. We had two kids. Brooke and Zach were probably four and three. Went back to my home church. Went to the kids ministry to check Brooke and Zach into the kids ministry there. Guess who greeted us there? Gave went over to Mrs. Ryan's. Mrs. Ryan's taught my two kids God's definition of love. Last year, I went back to my church and they asked me to preach. And as I'm preaching, I look down on the second row right over here is Mrs. Ryan's. And right next to her, Mr. Ryan's, they're still married and they're still leaning in to God for the source of love. You know what that did for me? It forged my confidence in God's word to change a life. When we read these passages of scripture every Sunday, 
if you respond with a listening ear, God has the capacity to change your life. How will you respond? Some of you are here today and you need to, first of all, do what Mrs. Rines did. You need to repent of sin, put yourself under the authority of God's word. You need to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. And then you need to go home and start applying the Lordship of Christ to your spouse and demonstrating that what you hear in church has actually taken root in your heart and impacts your home. If you need to confess Christ, if you need for the first time to realize that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, Christ loves you, even though you are worthy of nothing but judgment, nothing but wrath. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die on that cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And if you will give up your efforts of trying to be religious and proud and good, you can receive the righteousness of Christ as you pour out your sin before him. And that may be the reason why you've had such a difficult time loving your spouse, is you've never been brought to your knees by how much God loves you, has forgiven you, is not keeping a record of your wrongs. If he's done that for you, you can do that for your spouse. It's not love that holds your marriage together. It's marriage that holds your love together. Lord, I pray that you would, in fresh new ways, remind us of your love for us. Thank you for dying on that cross. Thank you for not counting our sins against us, giving us the power now to forgive others, to get fresh starts and new beginnings in every relationship. God, I pray for those that are married here today that this would be a fresh start and a new beginning and the world would know that you're our savior because of our love for one another. And I pray that you'd give some husbands and wives the humility to admit they need help and they're stuck. Give us the opportunity as a church to love them and to point them to Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The most beautiful picture of real love is not seen in a wedding photo album or romantic film or a passionate kiss while the moon is rising over the water. No, love is best seen on some rough pieces of wood with blood dripping down them, bloodshed for you and for me. And when it comes to marriage, the love that Jesus showed us on the cross needs to permeate our relationship so much that we love like he loves sacrificially, redemptively, unconditionally, and powerfully. Trent and Andrea Griffith have been walking us phrase by phrase through the famous love chapter of the Bible, showing how it applies to marriage. You know that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13? It was written by the Apostle Paul to a New Testament church that had a lot to learn about love. The church in Corinth was characterized by fighting and competition. So Paul challenged them to consider the greatest virtue, love. At Harvest Bible Chapel, we're in the process of learning more and more how to love one another. And we'd like for you to be on the receiving end of our love. 
That all starts when you visit our church for a worship service. To do that, go to harvestgranger.org, and in the middle of that page, just click where you see Worship With Us. Again, that's harvestgranger.org. Well, have you ever thought this? My children will be fine, even if my marriage isn't? Next week, Pastor Trent will help us fight against that lie. I hope you can join us for that. Well, thanks for listening today. I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer is that God's Word would resonate in your heart and in your marriage this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a radio and podcast ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel Granger. Visit us online at harvestgranger.org.